For the last 14 weeks, we've been in a, a, a series, a couple different series, the book of Acts, where we're, we're, we're following all these stories, these happenings throughout this wild, almost wild west of things in the first century church. And we talked about this up front that, you know, the book of Acts is not some kind of historical book that we just need to go, oh, okay, well, that's good, that happened, and, and let's move on. Neither is it, well, let's kind of, let's gather all these, like, deep theological truths from it so that we can now see that applied to our life, and it becomes like this exact pattern. Acts is a book of movement, and it's a book of Acts, different things that kept happening and things that we need to look at and consider and think about how, okay, God is on the move. As we mentioned uh, N.T. Wright from his commentary on, on Acts for Everyone, that God is on the move outside of the temple. That's expanding to this whole world. And there were all kinds of things now that the early church were having to step into, tensions. It's like they kept opening up... a one after another, some kind of Pandora's box of things. Like, it wasn't just simple, like, let's go preach the gospel and it'll be okay. It's, let's step out and proclaim that Jesus is Lord and we'll find ourselves being persecuted. And then God will come and save us and then we'll have to probably do that again. And they kept finding all these, all these huge wins of people coming to know Christ and, and yet they were suffering along the way. It's just, it just time and time again, they find themselves in these predicaments. And so we find that though this movement can't be stopped, there's something superintending it, that the Holy Spirit is at work. And at the same time, though, the Holy Spirit is wanting to use humans and their frailty to move this, this thing forward. And so with all the tension they're having to step into, they're finding they can't resolve this tension. They're just having to learn how to live in the tension, which is really what life's about, isn't it? Life is much more about learning how to live and manage the tension than resolve it. And I don't like that any more than you do. I like to think that whatever tension I'm stepping into, at some point in time, I'll find the keys and the truths to resolve it. And I think that's how we approach the Bible a lot of times, which we try to make the Bible magic. As opposed to letting the Bible just be a lot of stories of people struggling with their circumstances, asking questions, where is God? And willing to always step into those tensions. Because what we find with Acts and the Bible, it does not take away our fear. It makes us have to face the fears of our lives and question how far are we willing to follow this God? How true is this God to us? Is Jesus truly that inspiring enough to follow? And for these people in this book, they believe so. Now we get to this chapter, though, in Acts, Acts 12. It's a little bit different. It's like, the heat's been turned up on the stove with the pot on it just a little bit, but here they turn it to high because this is, this is a pretty epic event. And, and we could get caught up in the kind of the subtitle. I don't know what your Bible says, but uh, for, for mine, it says that, um, let's see here. It says, Peter's miraculous escape from prison. That's true. That's just not all. There's more in this that we need to consider and look at. So let's just though start with the first few verses and let's kind of dig our way in and see, yes, we're going to see a, a miraculous escape for Peter. And yet there's also more that, 
they're having to wrestle with, tension they're having to live in. So in verse one, it says about this time, it was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. And when he saw that this was met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. Now, Jamin mentioned in his sermon last week that um, after this conversion of Cornelius and his household, and then Peter taking it back to the apostles and them talking through this event, the gospel spreads up to what is now considered modern-day South Turkey, uh, a city called Antioch. And this was a, this was a, a Roman Greek city, which is a really big deal. A church, the first church plant outside of this Jewish world and construct. And the Jewish believers didn't know what to do with this. They sent Barnabas up, um, and Barnabas goes, and he's, he's preaching the gospel, it says, and all these people are coming to know Jesus. Like, it's really happening, and people are excited. And Barnabas is so overwhelmed with all these people coming to know Jesus that he goes down and gets Saul, who we know to be a Paul later on. Now, you got to remember, Saul's been hiding out because, like, he was, like, superintending people being murdered, okay? So he's hiding out. He's had this whole conversion, and Barnabas is like, yeah, don't worry about that. Come with me, another country. They don't know who you are. It'll all be fine. Saul goes there, and for the next year, they disciple all of these people, and it's amazing, like truly inspiring what's happening in Antioch. And so we had this huge, beautiful thing happening in Antioch, and then we zoom in back home to Jerusalem to, uh, to actually northern Palestine, and there is this guy named Herod. Now, Herod is the son of his, his other uh, tyrannical father, Herod the Great, who um, was the one that murdered all the babies when Jesus was born to and under. Like, this is his pedigree. This is where he comes from. This is a scary guy. Um, he's, he's not just playing around with the Romans the way the Sadducees are. Uh, the Sadducees really are ruled by the Romans, and yet they're kind of these ambassadors for the Jews. Herod is an evil, malicious person. And he's in it to finish up what his dad started. And so we find here that it was around this time of these great things that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church. Now, it says arrested, but I really like how the ESV says it. It says uh, he laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He laid violent hands. Arrested almost sounds too passive. Like he is a violator. He is malicious. He is evil. He intends harm. And he kills James, the, the son of John, not to be confused with James, the brother of Jesus, but he, he kills James. He executes him. And this is big because this is an apostle. This, this is like one of the, the main leaders. And you have to be wondering, like, what was it like for these people then, these Christians, when this happened? Because this, this wasn't just like someone that just maybe came to the faith or someone who's really, I mean, this, this is big. 
And they had to be wondering, like, if he could get to James in broad daylight and get away with this, what could happen to us? Like, just imagine the fear now. This is a little bit different than going up against the Sadducees, who are supposed to be like your spiritual overseers. This is now someone who is in it to, to wipe them out. And he has the power to do it and the resources to do it. And then it goes on to say that he arrested Peter he, and he was kept in prison. And this was even another level up because Peter was really the leader, wasn't he? Like he was the one that, even though they kind of were all in this together, he was the one stepping up in these moments, preaching these messages time and time again of the gospel, people coming to know Christ. And he arrests Peter with the intent of executing Peter. Now just imagine the weight of this for all these people who are saying, we want to be a part of this Jesus movement. And it even makes sense then. That's why it says they were earnestly praying to God crying out, this idea of earnestly, like stretched out, saying, God, please come and meet us. Come and help us. This is serious. And it's one of these moments, and maybe you can relate to this, where they were having to decide whether they're going to lean in or whether they're going to give up. Are they going to lean in to this or are they going to give up? And I think life is made up of those kind of moments, not to make it too simplistic, but I think life is made up of those kind of moments, whether you're either going to lean into this thing or you're going to have to get away from it with everything in you. And they're deciding to lean into this moment. God, where are you? We're going to pray fervently. And so we find that Peter's, Peter's in prison. Now, let me just stop and ask this. Like, consider this for Peter. Peter is doing the best he can to follow his king. He's really trying to just follow God and obey him. And this is now the third time, the third time that he's been arrested. Now, the first two times, again, with the Sanhedrin, that's child's play compared to Herod. And he's sitting there in prison, stripped down. They have, like Herod's making sure that this is gonna work out. He has four groups of soldiers, which four soldiers in each group, to sit three hours each in the night. Like, he's like, okay, I heard about what happened. I heard about what happened in Jerusalem. I heard about what happened with the, with the Sanhedrin. They're fools. I'm going to make sure that you die. So Peter knows he's going to die. Peter knows the cards are stacked against him and life is not going to work out. This isn't a, well, maybe I'm sure the Lord will come and provide and I'll get through this moment. Nope. This is a death is imminent. Now, let me ask this, because you got to consider for Peter, he's been beat down time and time and time again, and he eventually you'd have to think like he just has to like give in and go, this isn't going to work. And the question I have for you is, can you relate to that? Not the imprisonment part. I get it. You're here. Nobody's being imprisoned in this way, and you're going to die in a couple of days. Obviously not. But can you relate to being beat down by life so many times that eventually you kind of go, I don't think it's worth leaning in anymore. I think it's time that I just kind of give up and back out. And you haven't said it publicly. You've just kind of resolved it within your own heart. That I've been beat down too many times. You know, it starts off with going, you've heard of this, two steps forward, one step back. 
But then eventually two steps forward, one step back becomes something like maybe two steps forward and three steps back. And then like one step forward and 10 steps back. Um, and you get to a place going, is it really worth it? Can I really move forward with this? It's not just maybe a bad day you've had, maybe not just a bad week, maybe not just even a bad season. Maybe it's just a bad life. That life has come at you at so many angles, at so many places, and you go, I don't think this is going to work now. Like I had a lot of fervor and a lot of hope, and yet God was going to come through. But in this moment, in this place, in this situation, it's just not going to work. I'll tell you this. I think that's more common than what we want to admit. I think a lot of us, and I can speak for myself, we get to these places where, well, you know, the Bible says this, and we have like bumper sticker theology, you know, like you want to put it on a cup or in the back of your car, you know, God's good all the time, all the time, God is good, and, and you find that people don't want to be friends with you as much because you do that, yeah? You find that like we're giving away like these easy platitudes of faith that people go, well, great, I'll just kind of go take that and put it in my life, and they put it in their life, and it doesn't work for them. And we keep convincing ourselves that, well, you see, though, you just got to have faith. You just got to trust the Lord. And if you're just, if you pray hard, if you trust Jesus, it's all going to come together. And what happens when you're the person that that doesn't work for? What happens when, like, your prayers just aren't going up high enough? And, and you're not, like, really saying the right things for God to hear you? I don't know. Like, it feels like this kind of disconnect from those who have a privileged, privileged relationship with God and then those who don't. And yet we convince ourselves that, like, well, I just need to, like, be happy and trust God, and he's going to be good in this. And for a lot of us, like, we exited off that highway a while back. We just don't want to admit it. Because there's judgment and there's shame and there's questioning. Do we have really strong faith in this? I mean, I, I think that we tend to, in the church, be highly, incredibly abusive with our spirituality and our theology. And we get to this place where we tell people, like, well, you just need to have more faith. Well, maybe that's not it. Maybe life is just, just really hard. Maybe it's just incredibly difficult. And maybe I'm going to have to, like, wrestle through this and not be given, like, easy answers that'll make it all work out. Can you relate to that? Now, we know how the story ends, though, for Peter, because it's called Peter's Miraculous Escape from Prison. It worked out for Peter. Angel broke him out. Pretty wild, right? Like, I was trying to think, like, who would direct this movie, this little vignette here? It feels like maybe like a, a Spielberg Thing, you know what I mean? And it's got to be Tom Cruise, I think. And it's somehow it's just working out for Tom Cruise, you know what I mean? And it's kind of Mission Impossible-ish, you know what I mean? And, and, and so it just, he just kind of, you know, gets through the guards and you're thinking, wow, look at that beautiful shot and that beautiful scene. And, and then like Peter's in a stupor this whole time. He doesn't really know where he is. He thinks he's dreaming. Like it's just why I love the detail in it that he even, he shows up and they're convinced he's going to die. Like, they don't think he's going to show up. 
Like they're praying fervently, but like this really ain't gonna work. And then like this young gal, Rhoda, um, unfortunate name, but Rhoda um, answers, she's like, that's not you. Like that can't, she runs back. They're like, Peter's, he's not there. And they're losing their minds over it. Like it's really incredible, right? Really incredible. And yet, I don't know if a lot of us can really relate to that. Because how many of us really believe that we're going to have a miraculous escape from prison? You know, if you're beat down enough times, you'll start buying into it. Let me give an example. How many of you like going to the beach? Some of you are mountain people, I'm sure, but some of you are beach people. And I know when I go to the beach, you ever get like a, like a, a beach ball? Yeah? And you ever take it out to the water maybe and, and like play around with it in the water? Have you ever tried to like get on a beach ball and like, like float on it and whatever? You ever tried to push a beach ball down underwater? It's pretty hard, isn't it? Yeah, you tried. Yeah, it's pretty hard. It takes a lot of energy. You have to really be pressing down on that beach ball for it to go underwater. Here's what I would say. I think for a lot of us, there's some of us in this room that life has really worked out for. This next part isn't for you, okay? Don't worry, you can check out. For those of us that life has not worked out for, I think this is kind of what it's like. It's like 10 people taking your life, which is a beach ball, and shoving it underwater and making it stay there. It's something that's not meant to be underwater because if you let a beach ball go, what does it do? It floats. It floats. It's meant to float on top of the water. But if you take enough hands and enough pressure and push it down, eventually, like, it has to go completely underwater. I think that's why for a lot of us, it feels like that we're breathing underwater. Or it's like all of our movements are so slow. That's what depression so many times feels like. You know, we don't know what to do with this idea of depression today, except try to give some, like, worthless advice. That if you just exercise enough, eat well, it's all going to, like, get better. Well, like, if they could do that, they would do that. Brilliant, brilliant insight. Well, you just need to kind of change some things in your life. Oh, thanks for that. Like, we don't know what to do with people who are depressed, who are depressed, pressed down by life. We interact with them in ways that end up being more scarring and harmful because we don't know how to be with them in those places because it scares us too much. It's scary seeing a person who's pressed down by life, depressed time and time again when their life isn't working for them and you don't know what to do with their sadness, maybe their self-pity, and you get all codependent with them and you want to fix them. I know that's the way it is for me. It's really hard. And it's hard for others to get around me and I'm dealing with my own type of depression. It's a very real thing. And then we don't create space for it in the church because we're too scared of it. But the people who are going through this have legitimate reasons because maybe life is just that difficult for them. And maybe it's not for you. Maybe you were born with the right kind of situation, with the right people, and that's great. And then maybe others weren't. And then what happens for anyone who's struggling with that much being pressed down in life, you start comparing yourself to another person's life, and that's when it gets bad. Because now you become just like the shame monster to yourself, telling yourself to get it right and get it better, which pushes you down even more.
it's hard to know what to do with those of us who are being pressed down in life time and again. So what do we do? We've got to do something, right? Well, let's, let's just consider how the Bible deals with it. There's a passage that has haunted me for years. It's Hebrews 11. I don't know if you've ever read that. It's called the Hall of Faith. Really cheesy thing to say, but it's like Hall of Faith. It's like, it's like faith of Abraham, faith of Noah, faith of all these people. How their faith kind of, they conquered, right? And I want to put it on the screen here because it's a really interesting um, part. Hebrews eleven thirty two. 32. After they kind of go through all of these people, because I want you to consider something here. We have Peter's miraculous escape from prison, and guess what also we have in that passage? James' execution. So it worked out for Peter, not for James, which is a really unfortunate way to, to kind of title that passage, passage when you think about it, right? Peter's miraculous escape from prison. Yeah, James is executed. Now just keep that in mind. Verse 32, and what shall I say? I do not have enough time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign army, armies. Women received back their deads, raised to life again. And there were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. Which half are you? I know which half I want to be. I want to be the half that like is like wins the day. That's what I want to be. And there are some people that just really get to win the day. And if that's you, God bless you. Write a book, make some money. I'm behind you. And then there's those of us that just like, there ain't no winning this day. Sawed in two. Living in holes. The world was not worthy of them. See, the Bible is written by real people in real places in real times asking really hard questions, and that is, where is God in the midst of all this tragedy? Because life is tragic. And they truly want to get to the other side that God is faithful. But there's no shortcut to the part that God is faithful. You have to, at some point in time, just recognize how tragic life is. Yes, there is the push down and the beat down, the downtrodden. And we keep trying to force our way out of those moments, and it seems like it just keeps happening over and over again because we just don't honor the fact that life is hard and that some of us get sawed in two. Like, I don't, I don't, listen, I know that's not the Advent message you want to hear, but actually it's kind of like what Advent is. It's waiting for hope. It's holding out that maybe this could be true. 
But you gotta gotta recognize that like sometimes life is just a little bit too difficult and can you make it to the part where it's all gonna be okay? Jewish people had an incredible ability to let life be tragic. It's called like the Psalms. They just let their lives be tragic. I mean, you read Psalms and you're going like, well, he's good with God and he hates God, right? And like, he seems like a good kind of Jewish person and then he wants his enemies to like suffer. Like we don't teach that stuff on Sundays, I don't think. Have you heard that? No, maybe we should. Let's let our enemies suffer. Right, like if I was say like, pray for your enemies to suffer, you'd be like, well, that's my last time at Christ City Church, right? No, some of you are like, yes, finally, I want my enemies to suffer, that person on the other side of the room, right? Because that wasn't meant to teach theologically. You get that? You aren't aren't meant to teach the Psalms and go, well, that's how it works theologically. You're meant to read the Psalms and let them move you and go, there's a lot of humanity in that thing, and I just need to be willing to wrestle with it. It's called a wisdom book. One of the other wisdom books is the book of Job. You guys know the story of Job. Now, let me say up front, no idea if Job is, is real or not, all right? If you were to say he's real, you really have no idea, okay? Um, and to even say that he wasn't real, we're not really sure. Here's what we know. It's a story about a guy named Job. And it was written while they were in exile in Babylon because we know from the Hebrew how it was written. We also know that the way that the book of Job is constructed, it's very much constructed like Babylonian stories. So there's a really good chance that this is maybe a real person or not a real person, but either way, it's told in a way for you not to go, well, this really happened, as much as it is for you to go, okay, I need to learn something from this. Now, think about this. God's people are once again enslaved, once again pressed down, downtrodden. And so when you are in hard times, some of the best things to help you is always art. Like you don't need more facts. You actually kind of need some beauty or something to move you. And that's what this was meant to be. This is a story they would tell. Now let's think about the book of Job if you don't know it. Here's how Job starts out. There is this great guy named Job who has several kids, a lot of money, a lot of livestock, and life is working for him. Until there's like this weird council of angels that Satan's included in on, and they all go trouncing kind of into, into heaven. And then like God's like, well, let's, let's just kind of hang out here, right? Uh, and spend time. And Satan, how you doing, man? You doing okay? Is it working out okay on earth? No, hard times, okay? Yeah? No, like it's just kind of this weird conversation. And then so it basically ends up Satan and God making a bet over Job's life. That's what's happening in the first chapter or so. Now, here's what's happened in the church since then. We've tried to extract theological truths from that. Don't do that. The best you'll ever get out of that is that God and Satan make bets over your life, and that's not helpful. Maybe what they're trying to do with that interaction is show this. If you ever try to, let me ask you, have you ever asked why? Why is this happening to me? Isn't that like the most normal question ever? You go through hard times, why is this happening? Well, here's the thing. If you try to ask why is this happening, and God, why is this happening? The best you ever get to is the insanity that maybe God and Satan made a bet over your life. And it's not helpful. 
So your why questions aren't helpful. They're trying to show the absurdity of going, God, where are, why are you doing this to me? That's not the question. The question isn't why, God, is this happening to me? The question is where, God, in the midst of this are you? How, God, do I interact with this moving forward? Jewish people knew that was a worthless question to ask, so therefore they show the absurdity of that up front between God and Satan making a bet over their existence. So here's what happens in the book of Job after. We know that he gets all these boils in his body. We know his wife like basically leaves, them, leaves him, tells him to curse God and die. And Job's this righteous man who doesn't know why this is happening to him. Why am I so beat down in life? Why, why have I feel so like pushed down underwater? And so then he has three of his buddies show up and they all come to give him advice. Do you have those friends? Like you have friends that show up and you go through hard times and because they don't know what to do with their own feelings inside and they're so codependent, they try to give you lots of advice about how to handle your life. It's called a marriage usually, right? From there, it's called just friendships. Like we don't know how to live outside of these kind of relationships where we're just, I just need to fix you. Let me give you some good advice. Here's how I handled it. Oh, I'm praying for you and I'm praying for you to understand these truths here. So he has three friends that spend all these chapters trying to fix him. And when they get done, Job's like, no, that's not it. All your advice is silly. None of that is helpful. Which by the way, if you're a person being pressed down in life, you can relate to that because advice isn't helpful. 12 steps to the next best thing in your life isn't gonna do it. You don't need Joel Osteen or Oprah. You actually want somebody to sit with you and not give advice, but simply go, I'm sorry, and I don't know what to do with this. Thank you, neither do I. The most comforting thing you could give a person who's downtrodden. I don't know what to do with this. I have no clue if God's gonna come through. I just know it's hard, and I'm sorry. And so then we have this part where Job's wrestling and wrestling, and finally Job's like, I'm going to call down God. How dare God let this happen to me? Now, this is where we usually go, uh-oh, see, you don't do that. Don't, don't push on God, you see, because God's good all the time, all the times. God's good, got the bumper sticker, got the coffee mug, just believe it. And then you kind of go, but why is my faith so weak and I feel so shallow and I feel so lonely when I'm at church? Because it's bumper sticker theology. Here's what Job understands. I'm going to call God to the mat. Godfather speak, right? You get that. We're about to wrestle this thing out. Where are you, God? What are you doing? I've been following you. I, I, haven't, I haven't been wasteful with my life. I'm actually trying to walk with you, and this is what happens? This is what I go through? And then we get, like, in chapter 38, and, like, God shows up. Uh-oh. Uh-huh. And, like, the first question God asks him, because uh, he says, where were you when I started creating stuff? Huh? Have, have you seen deer making babies? And did you create that? I did. He actually says that. Right? Like, did, did, did you know and did you see and create the Leviathan, like this sea monster kind of thing? Which, God, I loved that when I was a kid. Like I would read Job, I would read Job as an eight-year-old. How messed up is that? Just to get to the part where it talked about the Leviathan. And I was like, you see, dinosaurs and people coexist. 
and that didn't work well. It's beautiful because God, like, speaks to Job, gives it back to him. And you want to think, like, you see, you learn your lesson, don't push against God. I don't think that's it. See, I don't think until you actually call God out as to what's going on in your life, you'll actually never know if you really can know God or not. I didn't make that up. That's just in the Bible. It happens over and over again. Nobody's sitting around just going, well, God's good, don't question. No, everybody tends to question things. And even Jesus encourages us to like, ask, seek, knock, be persistent. Don't be okay when the judge gives you this answer. Keep going back for the next answer. See, your relationship even with your spouse or your friendships won't work unless you're willing to have confrontation and conflict and learn how to work through it. Hey, I don't like it when you do that. Okay, let's talk about it. See, what Job's finding here is something more than just a transactional forensic relationship with God. Like, oh, thank you for saving me. Now let me go kind of be a foot soldier for you and go do good things in the world. Job's like, "Uh uh-uh. I've been invested in this thing with you. Where are you? What's going on here? And here's what I love about it. I've been thinking through this I was eight reading it, but I'll tell you this, since I've been about eight or nine years old, I've, I've thought through this verse so many times, I can't tell you. I think it almost may be like my life verse from the Bible. That sounds very Christian of me, but it's like my life verse in the Bible. Bumper sticker verse, here it is. Job 42.5, this is after his interaction with God. My ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself. He, he, the word despise is closer to, I have shame. And I repent in dust and ashes. My ears have always heard of you, and now my eyes have seen you. I went from something that was technicolor now to living color. I went from something that was just two, maybe three-dimensional now, like, oh my God, there's a fourth dimension here that's wild. I love in the message how it says, I admit I once lived by rumors of you, but now I have found it all firsthand from my own eyes and ears. I'm sorry, forgive me. I'll never do that again, I promise. I'll never again live on crust of hearsay, crumbs of rumor. Friends, here's what I want us to think about. Are, are you living on crusts of hearsay, crumbs of rumor? Because we're not willing like, just to be like, God, what's going on here? I, I just gotta, I gotta know, what, do you, what are you doing in this? Because it's hard. I don't like being this pressed down. I don't like having this much against me in life. I don't like being downtrodden in these situations. And listen, whether that's because of, of how you're wired or, or, or the color of your skin or because of your gender or because of your situation in life or what side of the tracks you grew up on, whatever it may be, a lot of us in this room know what it's like to be downtrodden. I think that's why you're here. Because I think that's what we're doing here. I think, I think you like, a lot of you like it here, not because we're just like, well, let's discuss like the color of the carpet in the room and then like the Lord will come provide. I, no, I think you like it here because, or maybe you don't like it here, but you have to come back here because we're willing to keep saying, hey, wrestle it out with God. Keep asking, keep questioning. And here's, here's what I would end it with. It's in your bulletin there. 
St. John Maximovich, aren't you jealous? Maximovich, mm. Russian Orthodox saint. He said, God's grace always assists those who struggle, but this does not mean that a struggler is always in the position of a victor. Sometimes in the arena, the wild animals did not touch the righteous ones, but by no means were they all preserved untouched. What is important is not victory or the position of a victor, but rather the labor of striving towards God and devotion to him, which stop. That's what Job was doing. Job was leaning in. And here's what Job didn't have that we do. Though a man may be found in a weak state, that does not at all mean that he has been abandoned by God. On the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ was in trouble as the world sees things. But when the sinful world considered him to be completely destroyed, in fact, he was victorious over death in Hades. The Lord did not promise us positions as victors as a reward for righteousness, but told us, in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. The power of God is effective when a person asks for the help from God, acknowledging his own weakness and sinfulness. This is why humility and striving towards God are fundamental virtues of a Christian. Are we leaning in? Are we willing to strive? And I don't mean strive like, let's just keep being good, righteous people. I mean like strive to be like, sometimes you just need to keep asking the questions and keep going, God, where are you? I want to wrestle this out. That's called relationship. And here's what I'd say. I don't know if you or me, if I'm a Peter or if you're a Peter or if you're a, Paul, or if you're a James, I don't know. But here's what I do know. I know that there's a God willing to come and meet us. And there's a God who's shown that he was willing to suffer and empathize with us in all of ways that we, we struggle in life. And if that can be encouraging to you, then I would say take that encouragement. And if you need to keep questioning, then I would say you need to keep questioning. Let's pray. So, Father, now as we come to the table, we pray and we ask that you would meet us and help us. Um, we... Um, We have questions, we have tensions, we have struggles in life, and I'm convinced that this message was not for everybody in this room because there's a lot of us that maybe life is just okay, and that's great. There's a lot of us that really do feel downtrodden and are asking questions like, what is going on here? We're feeling pushed down. And so I pray that for those people, they would have their own Job moment with you to be able to wrestle things out and to get to a place where their ears have heard of you, but now their eyes have seen you. And I pray that for them and for all of us, wherever we are, that would be able to start here and now as we come before your table. So we come to meet you and pray that you would meet us there. Amen.